Hey, what up? This is Shegan from ShegsAndStuff.com, and this is part four of a blog series through the Old Testament book of Esther. And today's blog post is titled, When It's Okay to Not Mind Your Own Business. So I read this poem many years ago that really impacted my life. It was written by a German Lutheran pastor and theologian, theologian named Martin Niemöller. Um, and he was writing in response to what he considered to be the cowardice of German intellectuals following the Nazi rise to power and their subsequent purging of Jews out of Germany. And, and Niemöller wrote these provocative words. He says, first, they came for the socialist, but I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. But then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And man, those words really stood out to me back then. It stands out to me today. Because, listen, his point is this, that if you remain quiet and you only ever mind your own business while others are fighting, um, you'll eventually be left with no one to step in and assist you in your time of need when your personal business needs minding. And that's where we're going to go today in this fourth part of Esther's story. And in fact, in, in today's story, in Esther chapter 4, we'll see that there does come a time when the best thing you can do is straight up just to get all up in somebody else's business because it'll benefit them and benefit you. And this is exactly where we find our main characters, Esther and Mordecai. Now, to give you some context as to where we are today, remember the events that happened in chapter 3. Uh, really, the events of chapter 4 are a reaction to the events of chapter 3. So, in chapter 3, this hater named Haman has just orchestrated a devious plan to wipe out every Jew in, in Persia, which, incidentally, is actually not too far removed from what the Nazi and SS leaders at the 1942 one c conference in berlin were planning as they discussed the final solution to the jewish question so history um was repeating itself at the 1942 event but essentially it's what's happening then now to feel the weight of what mordecai and the jews were experiencing in esther 4 1 to 3 where it says uh where it says that mordecai was mourning and wailing and weeping imagine waking up one morning and reading on every online newsfeed, newspaper, and, and watching on every news network this leading story. So imagine the story says this. President signs and passes a new bill, calls for the public execution of every undocumented immigrant. Now, that headline sounds a little ludicrous to our modern ears, right? Because, uh, But imagine living in a time period and in a country where the president has totalitarian powers and doesn't have the checks and balances of Congress and Senate. Imagine further that this particular bill that's turned into a law is legit and an exact date was set for when the executions were to begin. I mean, that's some scary stuff, right? In fact, this imaginary scenario is not too unsimilar to what happened between the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda in 1994 when the Hutus suddenly announced that they were to cut down all the tall trees, a reference to the mass murder of Rwanda. Right? Sort of the same, um, the mass murder of all the Tutsis in Rwanda. So it's sort of the same thing that's happening here. King Xerxes' edict to execute every Jew in the Persian provinces has sent shockwaves throughout the entire kingdom. 
and a gloomy heaviness has fallen on every single Jew. But unlike our Western restrained expressions of sorrow, these men and women, these Jewish men and women in Persia are just visibly and vocally letting their distraught be known. Esther chapter 4 verse 2 and 3 tells us that that meant to let their sorrow be known. They, they were clothed in sackcloth and ashes and there was loud wailing and bitter weeping in pretty much every city. In other words, no one could ignore this tragedy that was about to befall the Jews. So, so if you were a Persian trying to mind your own business, you couldn't because every home on your street was filled with loud crying and lamenting. And if that weren't attention getting enough, man, you also had to live with the fact that your Jewish co-workers showed up to work with ashes all over them. Because that's what's happening in, in the ancient, ancient Near East. Strong feelings of sorrow are often expressed in an outward, dramatic manner. You might have seen this on TV where, where Muslims are mourning. It's very vocal. It's very loud. That's how they, that's how they mourn. Now, in Mordecai's case, however, he, he wasn't just content to simply make noise about his sorrow just anywhere. Mordecai had to be strategic about it because, listen, it's no use complaining about a problem if you're not willing to pursue a solution. So, take note of where Mordecai places himself in verse 2 when it's morning. Verse 2 tells us that he went only as far as the king's gate, which is interesting. Why? Why, why would Mordecai weep? Because he could weep anywhere in the city, and he did, but he goes to weep by the king's gate. Why? Well, it's quite simple, because his cousin, Queen Esther, is in the palace, and he needs to get her attention. The assumption here is that Esther was unaware of the edict that was signed by the king. As, as queen, she may have lived in a very secluded, possibly highly protected part of the palace that kept her from staying up to date on the political affairs of the kingdom. Whatever the case may be, once Esther discovers the emotional and physical condition of Mordecai, perhaps out of fear that Mordecai might draw unwanted attention from the palace, she, she quickly offers a quick fist fix to his problem, right? So she offers him a makeover. And she sends him a new set of clothes, because remember, he's clothed in sackcloth and ashes. And so Esther sends him a new set of clothes because, let's face it, the queen's cousin, all right, cannot afford to be seen dressing in, in rags. Now, I'm being facetious with that uh, facetious with that commentary. I'm certain that Esther's intention to clothe her cousin Mordecai were well-meaning, but still, her actions to simply just clothe Mordecai um, are no different than me venting on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. It's no different than me venting on those social media uh, outlets about a pressing social injustice in society. Like, I might get a few of my close friends and family members to like my comment, even share it, but listen, commenting on it doesn't affect any real change. And so it's for this reason that Mordecai refuses the clothes that Esther sends to him. And as it turns out, we actually find out that Esther was indeed not aware of the edict because in verse 5, she sends her personal assistant to, to inquire of Mordecai what was really happening. And so Mordecai, in turn, illustrates for us in his response to Esther the first lesson in how to go about not minding your own business. So lesson one, here it is. Get the facts before you take action. Watch how Mordecai does this in verse 7 to 8, how he gets the fact before or presents the facts before taking the action. Verse 7 says, Mordecai told him, that's Esther's assistant, everything that had happened to him, 
including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave Esther's assistants um, a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her, and he told him, that's the assistant, to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So let's talk a little bit about getting the facts before you take action. Because listen, if it has not already happened, there will come a moment in your life when you will need to leave the comfort of the ringside seats and jump in the fight, right? A moment when it'll be perfectly okay not to mind your own business. Your fight may be an issue that threatens the value that a value that you personally hold to, perhaps even a biblical value. Or your fight may be on behalf of somebody else who's near and dear to you who feels timid about giving voice to his or her conviction. Whatever it is, listen, you will someday come across a hill of which you will say, man, man, this hill is worth dying for. And I'm not moving until my opinion or something is done about it. So listen, when that moment arrives, before speaking up and, and fighting or, or rallying other people to join your fight or your cause, be certain that you have gathered all the right information to prove that your cause and your fight is right and just. Now that may seem like an obvious lesson until you consider how many times we pass information along on social media. I mean, think about it. How many times have you come across shared information on social media, on your newsfeed, of which you know, even suspect, that the information is incomplete or false? You know what, let me ask that question, or let me, let me say that again more directly. How many times have you shared, liked, retweeted, or posted information online in the spur of the moment without actually checking to see if what you're sharing is true? Or, or how many times have you posted negative news about some celebrity or popular figure or even a church leader under the guise of, let's pray for them or let's keep them in prayer? Listen, let's be honest with ourselves and call what call this what it is. It, it, it's rumors and slanders when we repeat that information, even if it's just by liking it or sharing it because other people are reading it. And needless to say, the Bible has plenty to say on the issue of rumors and slander. I'll give you a few of them. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19. Proverbs 26, 22. Um, Ephesians 429, 2 Timothy 223, which um, really tells us don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they only produce quarrels. The point? Get your facts before you make somebody else's business your business. Be be careful and attentive to what you say, who you say it to, and how. You say it, and that's what we learn from Mordecai, right? Because Mordecai is right on top of this as he conveys in detail the king's edict to Esther. He even shows documentation that he's on that he's right about it. And so from there, right, moving on, the scene quickly shifts from Mordecai outside the palace courts to the royal chambers of Queen Esther inside the palace as she processes all that Mordecai has just brought to her attention. 
Now, as readers, this seems like an easy fix to us, right? Like Esther should just march into her husband's chamber and, and request that the law be reversed. And if that doesn't work, she could just always try sweet-talking him and, and maybe even guilting him into doing something about the matter at hand, right? Well, unfortunately, things don't appear to be happily ever after-ish uh, between the two lovers who, by the way, when we saw them in Esther 2, chapter 2, verse 17, man, they were madly in love, or at least Xerxes was in love with Esther. So so when we get here and, and, and Esther is hesitating, man, so, something is off um, because Esther sends a completely unexpected message back to Mordecai that's tantamount to her saying, you know what, Mordecai, I think I'm just going to sit this one out. Or I'm just, I think I'm just going to mind my own business on this one. Listen to what Esther says when she responds to Mordecai's request to go into the king. She says to him, verse 9, she says, All the king's officials, right, speaking of Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, like you're asking me to, without being summoned by the king has just, but there's only one law, and the law is this, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But Mordecai, listen, 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So let me explain what's happening here. Um, do, do you recall in chapter 2 the beauty competition that Esther won? Well, in that competition, technically, all the ladies who were competing won a place in the king's harem in that competition. Esther just happened to win the highly coveted role of queen. And I point that out to make the point, or to, so that you understand, that Xerxes is not a one-woman man. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was common for kings to have concubines or, or second-class wives. I mean, and this practice was more about demonstrating their strength and power than it was about having sexual variety. I mean, in some cases, it was. And Xerxes clearly has more than just Esther as a wife. He has a whole harem of them. In fact, the Israelite king Solomon is said to have had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, which by no means indicates that God approved of it, but that that's what he had. Now, we don't know how many concubines or extra wives Xerxes had accumulated, but listen, he had enough to keep him occupied for at least 30 days so that he didn't need Esther's companionship for that length of time. Either that or his love for her had begun to wane, uh, making it even harder for her to gain an audience with him. Furthermore, Persian law dictates that no one could simply stroll into the presence of the king without invitation. Otherwise, they'd be put to death, including the queen. And Esther knows that Xerxes has already proven to be an irrational man who was willing to depose his queen, Vashti, from chapter 1 on a drunken whim. So, so Esther knows that, man, she's on very fragile ground. If she heeds Mordecai's request to go speak to the king, she could be killed. And it would seem in such a moment that the safe option for Esther would really be to sit this one out and just, just mind her own business. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, Mordecai refuses to let her off the hook so easily. In fact, this brings me to the second lesson in how to go about not minding your own business. Lesson two, when you know that someone you've invested in is capable of achieving more than they're presently achieving, feel free to push them a little harder. Listen to how Mordecai applies this lesson to Esther. 
So in his response, sent back to her through uh, the assistance in uh, verse 12 and 4, uh, 12 to four, 14, Mordecai says this. He says, do not think, Esther, that because you are in the king's house, you alone out of all the Jews will escape this calamity. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I love this speech by Mordecai, right? Because this is this is the classic halftime speech that turns a team around and results in a in a winning game. So a couple of things here. First of all, Mordecai himself seems certain. I mean, this guy's full of faith. He seems certain that through one means or another, God will make a way and deliver the Jews from Haman's threat. There's no doubt in his mind that God will do this. However, he wants Esther to be a key player in this unfolding drama worthy of the heroes of the faith like Hebrews, uh, Hebrews talks about. Mordecai has already taken note of the providential hand of God in Esther's life and realizes that it was God himself who opened the door for Esther to become queen in the first place in order that she may someday be in a position to influence national policy. So then, so then in, in urging Esther to go into the king, in spite of the fact that it might come at the cost of her life, Mordecai was certain that the same God who had guided Esther's steps thus far would also protect her as she approached the king. You know, and as we think about this, hopefully um, you have people in your life that you've invested in, uh, people who in turn have given you permission to speak into their lives. So listen, if such persons exist and you ever see them living in a manner less than what you believe they can achieve, you, more than anyone else, have complete authority to say to them those difficult things and, and really to call them back to stay on course. It's, it's one of the few times when people give you permission to speak into their lives. It's one of the few times when it's actually okay not to mind your own business. They are your business as much as Esther was Mordecai's. You believe in them, you've invested in them, and you know they're not living up to what they are fully capable of. So it's okay not to mind your, your own business in those situations. Now, on that same note, actually, um, another time when it's okay not to mind your own business is when the person or persons who are being negatively impacted are too timid to speak for themselves, right? So that, that's another time when you, you probably need to speak up. So time and time again in the Bible, we find God himself speaking and fighting on behalf of the little guy, the, the orphan, the humble, the poor, the broken and by not minding your own business in those instances, you actually may end up being the boost that the other person needs to finally start fighting their own battles when you speak on their behalf. And this tough love approach proved effective in Esther's case because she sends Mordecai back a message in um, in verse 15 to 17. She sends a message back to him and says to him, all right, Mordecai, I hear what you're saying. Go ahead, tell you what, go gather together all the Jews who are in the city of Susa and fast for me. All right, we'll talk about fasting in a second. She says, do not eat or drink for three days, night, uh, for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, well, I, I perish. And so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's 
instruction. You know, as I read that, I don't know about you, but we can't help but beam with pride as we read Esther step up. I mean, this girl has counted the cost. She is fully aware that she might lose it all, including her life. But she's also willing to step out in faith, knowing full well that God might choose to use her audacity in the same way that God has used ordinary men and women of old to accomplish extraordinary things in the life of his people. And I think even better yet is the fact that Esther actually has a very clear course of action. In fact, that brings me to lesson number three in not minding your own business. So here it is. It is okay to not mind your own business when a way of life or life itself is being threatened, especially if there is a clear course of action that needs to be taken. You know, I, I love the fact that Esther didn't just hurry off into her own private prayer room in her chamber to seek God's help. Rather, she, she rallies everyone who has a vested interest in the well-being of the Jews, including her maids and all the Jews in the capital city, to join her cause. And she invites them into a dedicated time of prayer and fasting. By the way, here's a bonus tip. Um, not minding your own business is always more fun and more effective when you're with a group of like-minded people who share the same level of passion of your convictions. Man, there, there's power in numbers. And that's what Esther does. Esther not only has every intention of going to go speak to the king, but the next chapter really will reveal that she actually has a strategic game plan, a clear action to accomplish this. But before she steps into action, man, she, she, she yields to the counsel of what the, pro, the author of Proverbs 16.9 says, where he says, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Esther recognizes this, and she recognizes that no matter how great her plan is, man, she needs God to fight for her, right? So, so we want to allow God plenty of room to fight our battles. Frankly, he's a better skilled warrior. By the way, I spoke about fasting and prayer. If you're not familiar with what the discipline of fasting is, so fasting is the intentional it's the intentional abstention from food or drink for a set period of time for the sole purpose of seeking God in prayer. I mean, it's it's essentially a desperate cry out to God saying, "Lord, I need you and I need you now." And man, there are many prayers that we're praying that perhaps would be dare I say, expedited if we would just seek God through fasting. Now, do you know what's even more powerful and more impactful than one woman praying and fasting? It's having every single Jew in your city praying and fasting along with you, which is exactly what Esther does when she rallies all the Jews in the city of Susa to fast for her. And, and that wraps up chapter 4, Esther chapter 4. Now, in the following chapters and in the coming weeks, man, we're going to see... Um, we will see what happens when God's people who are called by his name humble themselves and call on him through prayer and fasting. And, and we'll see indeed that greater things are still to come for the Jews. And that's where we're going to go in this series. But listen, um, in the meantime, if you want to dig in a little deeper, and I invite you to do so, I invite you to download the free PDF accompanying devotional guide that I created for this study. I hope you uh, enjoy. I hope this lesson was a blessing to you. I pray God's peace over you and I pray for God's wisdom in learning when to mind your own business, but especially when to not mind your own business. May God's peace go with you and be with you.